Well, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> I, uh, I know that the Bible says that the prayers of a righteous man availeth much, and you guys must be super spiritual here. One of the things that uh, I know the search team at least was praying for uh, over the course of these last few weeks was for good weather, and uh, it's like summer out there right now, so you guys might have overdone it even a little bit there, but... Um, Brothers and sisters, I am really grateful for this opportunity to speak here uh, and to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, my wife Liz and I have just felt so warmly welcomed by all of you, and, and we're just genuinely excited to uh, continue to meet you, to get to know you better, and uh, during the remainder of our time here with you. I would love it if you'd open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, as you're turning there, I do want to uh, just offer a bit of counsel, something that we're all thinking about. We are gathered here in this particularly important moment in the life of Grace Church, and I know that the temptations that you and I might face in the moments ahead uh, might be to care about things like uh, how I carry myself and how I speak and, and uh, how funny I am and, and what might it be like to have this guy as your pastor and, and such things. And I know for myself as well, I might be tempted to focus on me and, and all of those same things. And wanting to present the best version of myself I, I possibly can to you. But I want to encourage you and me uh, this morning, as best as we can, to push those things aside for now. Because if we give in to that temptation, then what we won't hear this morning is God's word. And that's actually what we all need, each one of us. And so um, I believe that as we give our attention to God's word, that the spirit of God will use his word to accomplish his purposes in us and through us uh, as we engage this text. So with all that said, uh, please follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The Apostle Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make these words effective to transform us more completely into the image of your Son. Please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that are soft and easily moved by your word. Amen. Well, I realize that we're just dropping into this text this morning, and so it's helpful to get a little bit of context about what's going on in 1 Corinthians uh, you're probably familiar with this passage, but it's always helpful just to get a little bit of our bearings here. The city of Corinth was a city at this time that was absolutely obsessed with social status. It had even seeped into the life of the church there. And it's evidence, we won't take the time to read it, but if you go back to chapter 1, verses 10 through 13, we see that people in the church were dividing with each other over which particular church leader they were going to follow. I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. And they were, they were dividing with each other and trying to increase their status inside of the church by assigning this 
leader or this other leader to themselves. Um, you know, most of what Paul writes in our text is actually against a backdrop of uh, these itinerant professional speakers of the day um, that did these kinds of things that he is not going to do in how he approached them. Uh, today, we have similar kinds of professional speakers uh, that fill hours on TV screens, late night talk show hosts, late night comedians, and they make millions a lot of times talking about nothing. And that's kind of like what these speakers were. Just like our talking heads today, back in Paul's day, uh, these were people that didn't believe or at least didn't care about the truth of what they were saying. They loved to win arguments, regardless of whether their position was the correct position or not. They loved sophisticated rhetoric. They loved fancy words, and they loved lofty speech, Paul calls it in, in verse 1. In verse 4, he calls it plausible words of wisdom. These professional speakers were sometimes called sophists. They're not called that in our passage, but that's what's going on here. And they were professionally trained to win over audiences by persuasion or by entertainment so that they would get applause and approval from the crowds. Uh, and again, if they were in a debate, they didn't care about whether or not what they were saying was true. They only cared about winning. So uh, oftentimes they would sacrifice, of course, their personal integrity in order to uh, make their points, in order to get uh, through wild enthusiasm sometimes, the, the approval and the applause from the people. They were very good at persuading people. It's clear again that Paul is setting his message, the message of the gospel, against that. He's, he's saying, that's not what I'm here to do. That's not what I did when I was among you. Uh, he is all about something else entirely. It's even clear that Paul considers their so-called wisdom to be empty or worthless because it didn't bother itself with the truth. Everything Paul says in our passage here is to be contrasted with that empty kind of human wisdom. Let's look at how Paul describes his preaching ministry. First, in verse 1, he says again, not with lofty speech or wisdom. One author writes about the setting here. In a city where social climbing was a major preoccupation, Paul's deliberate stepping down in apparent status, would have been seen by many as disturbing, disgusting, or even provocative. Why? Well, it's because we all, each of us, want to follow people who are strong and charismatic, right? Imagine if Matt Rule, the Huskers' new, new-ish football coach, right, had come in and he had said, Last year, before the season even began, with all kinds of bravado, we're going to win a national championship this year. He might have gotten some big applause and some big approval from, from some of the crowds because which Husker fan doesn't want to see that sort of thing happen? We all want to hear that kind of message if, if we like the Huskers. Even doubters might have said, well, what if, what if he's right? Could, could he be telling the truth? Could it be real? Uh, and at the, at the same time, we, we want to follow each of us, just naturally in our souls, someone that's going to tell us something that we want to hear. We want strong, we want successful leaders. We want them so badly that sometimes we're willing to believe charismatic people who present themselves as strong leaders. That was not the Apostle Paul, though. 
Paul is setting himself up against these sophists, against these people that the Corinthians were used to hearing. And Paul knew that if he had thrown in his lot with their approach, if he had followed their way of speaking, he would have been accepting all of the bad along with all of the good. His message might have been easier for the Corinthians to understand because it would have followed a pattern that they were familiar with. Uh, his message might have been more palatable to the Corinthians. It might have been more agreeable to them. They might have liked it more. But if he had done that, he would have sacrificed his ability to claim the truth of his message. And that was a sacrifice he was not willing to make. Even before our verses this morning, he made it clear in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom. Why? Lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So his, his preaching was first not with lofty speech or wisdom. The second way that Paul describes his preaching is in verse 2. He says, nothing, didn't preach anything, I preached nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul had decided, he made a judgment call to prioritize Jesus Christ and specifically his death on the cross. And please hear what's behind this. It's not as though Paul had somehow made himself forget all of the other things about Jesus except his death on the cross. It's not as though nothing else matters whatsoever, but Paul and his ministry and his message had a singular focus, the gospel. The sophists' focus was on winning the applause and the approval of the crowds. Paul's focus was on making sure his listeners knew this man, Jesus, and his crucifixion. Applause and approval were to be neglected for the sake of the message and its clarity. So then what was Paul's message? In verse 1, he calls it the testimony of God. And he spells it out further in verse 2 as, again, Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is just shorthand, again, for the gospel. And what exactly is this message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. It is the story of Jesus, the one who lived a righteous life for sinners, the one who died on a cross for sinners, the one who was raised to new life for sinners so that we might be rescued from sin and from death so that we might have an eternity to spend with God in perfect unending fellowship forever. Now, Paul has more to say than just that. But it's clear that the more that he has to say isn't just some other things that are more advanced beyond the gospel. He's not trying to move past the gospel. Rather, he's continuing on, just putting on the gospel on display for the Corinthians from more angles. Let's consider then first Paul's heart for the Corinthians here. Again, he's setting himself apart from the, the sophists. He's not demanding approval and applause from the Corinthians. He is showing his desire for the Corinthians to know the truth of the gospel so that they might continue on in the faith. He's not trying to help them to, to get to the next level of Christianity as if the gospel is the front door to salvation. And then there's other more advanced things after that. No, he is telling them, go back to the gospel. You've understood it. You've believed it, but you haven't mastered it yet, or rather you have not been mastered by the gospel yet. And we need to look at this word in verse 1 here, 
proclaiming. This word, by the way, should not be understood only with reference to what I am doing right now. He's not referring only to the kind of Bible preaching that we think of as taking place on the Lord's Day in a corporate worship service. Essentially, he is this, this word proclaiming boils down to what we think of as speaking gospel truth in a context, in any context, where truth and necessity are the priority. In other words, Christian, when you are talking to your friend, your neighbor, your family member, your coworker, and you are sharing the gospel in a way that they can understand it, and in a way that conveys to them that you believe it is incredibly important that they believe this also, that it is actually necessary for them to believe it, that salvation depends on their belief in the gospel, then you are also doing the exact kind of proclamation that Paul is talking about right here. I realize most of you will never do something like what I'm doing right now, speaking to a group of folks uh, and, and preaching a sermon. But this kind of proclamation that Paul is referencing here, this is something that every Christian is called to. We all need this word to love the gospel more than applause, more than approval, more than friendship, more than acceptance, more than a raise at work, etc. Another way to say it is that we must love the gospel even if it costs us, even if it costs us friends, even if it costs us family relationships, even if it costs us our job, even if it costs us our time, or as it would eventually for the Apostle Paul, even if it costs us our life. We see in verses 3 through 5 that Paul actually even delights in his weaknesses. Uh, he goes so far uh, even to say that he celebrates this. If you, if you remember the, the famous verse out of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul there tells us that Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness, right? And then he says, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Do you see how we, we can't highlight human power and divine power at the same time. They are in conflict with each other. And that idea went against every instinct that the Corinthian church had. And our culture today is no different, right? Who delights in their own weaknesses? Paul did. And Paul delighted in his own weaknesses because it was at Christ's so-called weakest moment, the moment of his death on the cross, when the power of God was at its strongest. The power to save resulted from that moment of supposed weakness, when God died a human death on a Roman cross. Nobody would believe that message. Nobody, that is, except for someone who's been made to know that powerful truth by the Spirit of God. That's the gospel. So at this moment in the life of Grace Church, where will you look for the power to save souls? 
whether or not you have a senior pastor on staff? Where will you look for the power to overcome the sin that is in your own heart each day? There is only one that has the power to do that, and Paul says his name is Jesus. So Paul's ministry, though, could be characterized by divine power working through human weakness. He mentions in verse 3 this fear and much trembling as demonstrations of that weakness. That's how Paul spoke to them. I don't picture Paul speaking that way when I, when I picture that in my mind, but that was how Paul approached ministry because that was how Paul approached Christ. In verse 4, he begins to discuss his speech. In essence, the way, his manner of speaking to them while he was with them. He used speech that demonstrated his weakness and the power of God. He repeats for us in verse 4 that he did not use the clever language of the sophists. He was not leaning on human wisdom to convey truth. Instead, Paul used simple, Holy Spirit-empowered language. One translation of verse 4 reads this way, My speech and my proclamation were not with enticing clever words, but by transparent proof brought home powerfully by the Holy Spirit. He had conveyed gospel truth by providing the Corinthians with plain, simple teaching. But he knew full well that that teaching would have zero effect if the Spirit of God did not bring it home to the listeners' hearts. And he tells us exactly why he speaks and acts in these ways. Again, the temptation that they were facing is to place their hope in their own strength or in the strength of their, their leaders that they were dividing over. So he tells them what should and what should not be the basis of their faith. And in verse 5, he makes it clear, not human wisdom, rather the power of God should be the basis of your faith. Paul, again, is at pains here to demonstrate to the Corinthians the basis that should form, or what should form, rather, the basis of their faith. And as we're considering this text, it's only fair for us to ask the question, why? Why does Paul care what the basis for their faith is, so long as the object of their faith is Jesus Christ. In other words, what difference does it make how you get to Jesus so long as you get to Jesus? Right? Who cares, Paul? Shouldn't we want people to get there by any means necessary? And Paul actually answers with an emphatic, no, absolutely not. Jesus himself cared a great deal about the way that people came to him, about the way that people approached him. And I want to give you just two quick uh, contrasting examples from the Gospels this morning to demonstrate this. Uh, first, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want to. Uh, John chapter 12, verse 21. It's a story where some Greeks came to Jesus, or they came rather to his disciples, and they wanted to speak with Jesus. We're told in that place that uh, these Greeks came to Philip, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. But then what's astonishing to me in this story is that Jesus actually refuses to see them. 
he refuses to meet with them. Do you know this story? Think about that. This is Jesus. This is the guy that goes out of his way to speak with even the lowliest of people, and he won't speak with these, these Greeks. These Greeks would come to his disciples with this very polite request. Sir, they say, we wish to see Jesus. And why would he refuse them? Well, it has to do with how they approached Jesus. They came to him like he was a big deal, but kind of a big deal by the world's standards. And how do you approach a great man in this world by the world's standards? Well, you go speak with his people. And then his people might talk to their people, and their people then might eventually run it up the flagpole, and then you might get uh, his approval to speak with them, right? And that's how these Greeks were approaching Jesus. But Jesus was not merely a great man by the world's standards. Let me give you a different example. Luke chapter 7, um, a more well-known story. Uh, the sinful woman uh, there who's mentioned in Luke chapter 7. Do you remember this story? That while Jesus was eating at a Pharisee's house, the sinful woman approached Jesus from behind. She goes straight up to him. And she must have been bawling because she uses her tears to wash his feet. And she dumps a flask of oil on him. And then she kisses his feet and she uses her hair to scrub his dirty, nasty, probably feet. Can she just feel the, the absolute desperation that would have to possess you to make you do that to someone else? And Jesus accepts this approach. He accepts this woman. And this is incredibly important. Uh, Jesus is important. But he accepts that. She needed Jesus. She recognized that. The Greeks were just interested. We want to, want to, know, we want to know more about this man. We'd like to meet with him, see what he's about, right? Um, Paul, in our passage, is saying how we approach Jesus matters greatly. It is of vital importance. Does this affect the way that you think about your own approach to Jesus? Might it have bearing on how we conduct a worship service or how we think about uh, reaching our lost friends and family and neighbors? I, I want to make sure to say here, too, by the way, Paul is not against eloquent speaking per se. He's not against rigorous study, preparation, training, all of those things. Those things can be great helps to gospel ministry. And if you'll glance just really quickly over at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, you'll see that it's, it's not that the gospel is unwise. Rather, it's that it's a different kind of wisdom. In 1 Corinthians 2, 6, Paul says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. See, Paul isn't against wisdom. He's against so-called human wisdom and self-glorification. He is dead set against anyone's faith resting on human wisdom or on the personal charisma of a human leader. 
Okay, but still, why does Paul care about how we get to Jesus so long as we get to Jesus? Well, reason number one, human wisdom is opposed to the gospel. Uh, We see this, and again, I won't take the time to read it with you this morning, but chapter 1, verses 18 through 25 makes this abundantly clear right before our passage today. Um, If you believe the word of the cross that Paul mentions there in verse 18, in essence, the gospel, then you are a fool by the world's standards. Paul, by the way, doesn't downplay the role of the crucifixion in the Christian message. He actually, and it's that crucifixion that makes the gospel so unbelievable to so many. But Paul actually holds up the crucifixion as the centerpiece of the Christian message. And for those of us who have come to faith, we actually see the wisdom of the world as foolish, don't we? We're amazed when unbelievers don't believe the gospel, but we should be amazed rather when they do because it requires always a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit to discern spiritual truths. And chapter 2, verse 14, just a few verses after our passage, tells us the natural person, the person that doesn't have the Spirit of God, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly or foolishness to him. And he is not able even to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, or rather, I would say, a better translation would be discerned by the Holy Spirit. In any case, the object of our faith, Jesus, matters immensely, but Paul also cares whether or not it is the Spirit of God who has led us to Jesus. So again, why does Paul care about how we get to Jesus? Reason number one, human wisdom is opposed to the gospel. Reason number two, human wisdom human wisdom will eventually rob us of the hope of the gospel. So here's the deal. If human wisdom is what led you initially to Jesus Christ, then human wisdom will lead you away again. The Spirit would never do that. But human wisdom, as we have seen, is actually opposed to divine wisdom. So it won't let you stay there for long. If someone convinced you, uh, maybe with a really persuasive argument one day, uh, to, to favor the gospel, then, and, and your faith rests on that, okay, then someday someone that's more intelligent, more persuasive, will present a, a, an even more persuasive argument for you that will lead you away once again. Now, human wisdom is actually more broken than a broken clock. Uh, you know the saying that even a, a broken clock is right twice a day? Well, human wisdom, Paul says, isn't even right when it's right. It's more broken than a broken clock. Because even when human wisdom leads us somehow to truth, it's completely by accident. And because it's by accident, it still hasn't actually led us to truth because there's no lasting foundation for that truth. So why are you here today? Have you come in in your own strength? Or have you come in your weakness? Have you come because you've got yourself all put together? Or have you come with a sense of desperation, of your need for this Jesus that we read so much about in the pages of Scripture? for salvation, for sanctification. Human wisdom is not powerful enough 
to bring you to Jesus. And if you come to Jesus in your own strength, thinking that you are contributing something to him, he will have nothing to do with you. And we must approach Jesus as Paul did. He writes in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, he says, Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And he did this so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. In fact, if you're weak, as we've said, you can boast in your weakness because God gets more glory when he saves weak and foolish people. And God gets more glory when he works through weak and foolish people. His power works through the foolishness of gospel proclamation. It's completely upside down from how the world operates. But many today, even in Christian circles, uh, work tirelessly to try to improve the gospel message. They want to preserve, I think, at least just a little bit of glory for us. There are many proclaimers out there today who try to remake this word of the cross so that it isn't quite so offensive to human pride. This isn't new. It's been around since ancient Corinth, and it can be sophisticated at times and, and even seductive to genuine followers of Jesus Christ. Uh, some preachers out there today, some gospel proclaimers, will add to the gospel. They'll add on something like gospel plus morality. And so they'll say that Christianity is kind of a list of do's and don'ts. Don't drink or chew or go with girls who do, and, and then you'll be a good Christian, right? Others try to add on emotion or feeling, experience. Remember that last time you were really close to God and how good that felt? Well, now, how do you recapture that moment? What sort of uh, process can we work you through to get you jazzed up again and juiced up and, and feeling that spiritual high, that, that next mountaintop uh, experience, right? Others will add into tradition, right? Gospel plus tradition. This is the kind of going through the motions Christianity where I, I don't really know what I'm doing or why I'm doing it, but people have been doing this for hundreds of years, and so I'm just doing it hoping that if I do it enough, maybe God will love me more. Please hear me, Christian, that Morality is obviously not bad. Christian experience is not necessarily bad. Tradition is not necessarily bad. But if we believe that the power of the gospel rests on any of those things, or even on Jesus plus those things, then in essence we're saying that Jesus isn't enough. And that we need to add something to Jesus in order to improve the gospel. But when we try to improve the gospel, we end up ruining the gospel. Others try to improve the gospel by subtracting things from it. Some will subtract scripture from the gospel. Some churches today only want to hear comforting things, right? And to be sure, there are many wonderful and comforting truths in the pages of scripture. However, these places do not want to hear the full counsel of God's word. And so they will uh, balk at things like law or sin or any mention of repentance. Or with some, it's actually just saying, you know, we need to take the Old Testament and just kind of chuck that into the dustbin of history and only preach pleasant things from the New Testament. Some will subtract suffering from the gospel. 
They'll say that uh, a life that is centered on the gospel is free from suffering. They proclaim that uh, following Jesus results in tremendous physical blessings in this life. Things like health and wealth and prosperity. And that's a message the world can really get on board with, by the way. Others will subtract exclusivity from the gospel. There's many today that say you don't even really need to know Jesus to be a Christian. There are many anonymous Christians out there. You can be saved apart from Jesus from hell. In fact, many of those folks seem to even say that there may not even be something like hell. Everybody goes to heaven in that view. And, and my question to those folks is, well, why even have the gospel at all at that point? The list could go on. There's many ways to improve the gospel, but none that actually work. And in trying to improve the gospel, they try to highlight the strength of man, and therefore they rob God of his glory. And as a result, believing in any of these improvements puts our souls in grave danger. Paul did not want to say more than what the gospel warranted, and he did not want to say less than what the gospel warranted, and we would be wise, I believe, to follow his example. Paul wants our hearts and Christ's church to remain centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ, which reminds us of our weakness and of our desperate need for him. Every one of us is naturally geared in one way or another to add things to the gospel or to subtract things from the gospel. But if our faith truly rests not on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God, then we will proclaim to each other again and again the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul says, Jesus Christ and him crucified here toward the start of 1 Corinthians. He carries this on as the main theme of his message through the whole book. Uh, all the way to the end, toward the end in chapter 15, verse 1, he says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of this gospel message I preached to you, which, in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. And here's the gospel according to Paul, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to several people after that. Do you see what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians? Do you see what he's doing here? The, the, the gospel is his top, absolute top priority. It's, it's the first thing. It's the last thing on his mind. And failure to get that message across to the Corinthians would be disastrous in his mind. So Paul just kept on preaching the gospel. What had helped him? Jesus and him crucified. What had helped the Corinthian church? Jesus and him crucified. What will continue to help you individually and as a church? Jesus and him crucified. Brothers and sisters, lean into the power of that message and let it take hold of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is your will for us to glorify and to love Jesus Christ. We see him now as if through a, a glass darkly, but we will one day meet him face to face and then proclaim him more perfectly with our hearts and lives. We pray that you would help us to find all our happiness in oneness with Christ. 
in having heart and mind centered only on him and in being like him. This is our heaven on earth. To do this, we need the leading of your Holy Spirit to carry us along the way. Help us to resist the worldly temptations that come our way and to listen to your voice in your word. Clothe us with your grace and grow us in love for your gospel today and every day forward. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.